thank you for listening to this podcast message from Stowe Presbyterian Church. This message was given by Pastor Bob Stanley. So we've been looking at the book of Romans. And last week we got back into things. We got back in the swing of things. And if you're new to this or if you've forgotten, one of the things we love about the book of Romans, it's personal. It's a book that relates to each one of us. It's a powerful book. It's one of those circular letters that Paul wanted the whole church to understand the depths of God's grace, the richness of what it means to be found in Jesus Christ. It's a deep book, so it's personal, it's powerful, but it's also, it's a doctrinal book. It shows us how all of God's word ties together. It's a very instructive book for the church today, and a lot of preachers don't like to do this kind of thing, and I I understand why, because it's hard work for preachers. I just want you guys to know, when we do expositional preaching, when we go passage by passage, It's a lot harder job. I could come up with seven things to make you feel better about your life today. But that's not the word of God. It's not that all topical preaching is bad. But I think there are times in the life of the church when we want to understand how God's people have interacted. And how the church back in Rome is so much like the church today. And as we've seen, as Paul has guided us and talked to the Roman church, there's so much in our lives, that we need to see where the Holy Spirit is at work calling us as Paul was talking to the Roman church and calling them to repentance. And last week we came back from that break and we we went back through Romans 1 through 6 and we talked about the prices of our sin and how sin brings death not just to our bodies but to our spirits as well. And we find ourselves under one of two laws. We do. We find ourselves under this law of perfection and of physical obedience. And that's the law of Adam that we've talked about. Where we have to get it right. That sin is hitting the bullseye every time. Or the other option, there's only two, is we find ourselves in God's word under the law of grace. And under that second Adam in Jesus Christ where it's not our righteousness, but Christ's righteousness that God counts for us. And that's what Paul wanted us to see. There's so much wrapped up in those first six chapters that God's grace given to us in Christ, it sets us free. It gives us a new life. And as we find ourselves under those laws, we see one thing that they have in common last week. Both of these covenants, whether you're on the covenant of of law or of actions, you're under that first covenant or under this covenant of grace, both of those things are about perfection, about perfect obedience. They're about holiness. Both of them are because God's standard is holiness. It's perfection because God is perfect. He says, be holy as I am holy. God says that. And that's the struggle we found ourselves in as we got into Romans 7. So the question we started to answer last week is, whose standard are you standing in? Are you standing in your own actions and your own perfection? Or are you standing in Christ? Because if God's standard is holiness, Who was holy? Is it you and me or is it Jesus Christ? And Paul wants to see that, no, you can't stand in your own holiness. There's no way you could ever do that because we sin. In fact, we sin a lot. I I can give you a list right now, the ways I've sinned this morning, but I won't. Hopefully you won't either. That would make for an awkward congregational meeting after church for everyone. We all done it though, right? Not only do we sin, we sin a lot. And not only do we sin a lot, we like to sin. Right? Daytime television is proof that we like to sin. 
Not the price is right. That is perfect as God is perfect, though. <laughs> Drew Carey, Kent, Ohio. That's right. Okay, yeah. Cleveland does rock. Drew Carey's a smart guy, right? No, but we, we like the, the gritty little details. We think we can just uh, squeeze a little bit of it in, but we're not set apart. We're not holy, and we understand that. And because of that sin nature, we hurt ourselves, we hurt other people, and so God brings us in to this understanding. Paul brings us in by the Holy Spirit. God's talking through Paul and wants us to look at this idea. What does it really mean because we're sinners, because we're all a bit of a hot mess, to follow Jesus and to belong to him? If the standard is holiness, and you know you're not holy, and if you're like me, you say something, you do something, you hurt someone. This week, I had about, and this is a, a low week for me, 14 or 15 times where I probably said to myself, why did you just say that? Worse yet, it's not just as we're going to see today about our actions. You may think, why did you just think that? Have you ever done that? What does it mean for us? Because we're not perfectly holy, because we're not set aside, what does it mean for us? What does it mean for us? Paul was warning the Jewish church, or the Roman church, with the Jewish Christians, the converts in there. They looked down on some of the Gentile, the non-Jewish Christians. They said, you know, I'm pretty good, and I'm better than these guys. And then the Gentile Christians looked at the pagan Christians who were doing all kinds of crazy stuff and then found Jesus. And they're like, well, yeah, you know, we didn't have that like you, but we're not like these guys. And then they were just looking around for serial killers or somebody else to like maybe point the finger at. But that was the Roman church and it was like our church. And we're all looking for a way to pass the buck. And this self-righteousness and rebellion we talked about last week. The law, God's word, combined with God's spirit, convicts us of our sin. We didn't know we were messed up until we read the Bible sometimes. And we said, oh man... If God's bullseye's over here, I'm all the way over here. If God's standard is perfection, I'm so far away from that. That makes me mad. When someone tells you not to do something, what do you do? You want to do with it. You want to do it. If there is a way to get around a line at the amusement park, aren't you tempted to jump the line? Now, the older you get, the more complicated this becomes. When someone says, don't do that, the first thing you want to do is do it. And worse yet, when you get caught doing something, whether you're thinking it, whether you're saying it, whether you're living it, you say, well, I'm not doing that. Or worse yet, you do with the Roman church. So you say, well, I'm doing that, but I'm not like them. The worst thing is when you're in an empty nest and the only person you can blame is your spouse or the dog. And the dog's not an easy target. He's really nice in my house. It's hard. I'm at the low end of the totem pole often. That's just how it works. But when we're married to the law, to that idea that I'm going to stand in my own righteousness, I'm going to stand in my own, I'm going to get this together, it's like a bad marriage. That's what we talked about last week. It's like something that brings out the worst in you. You rebel, you compare, and you judge. You think terrible things about other people. You put them down. And this reality of sin, if we're such sinners, what do we do with this? 
If sin's defeated in Jesus Christ, this is what Paul's been getting at this entire time till we get to our passage today. If sin's defeated, if what we just celebrated at Easter is true, why are we all still such hot messes? Isn't that what the world around us wonders about the church? Isn't that what we wonder about ourselves? I think it is. I think it is. And here we're going to see, and you don't see this as much in the English, but in the Greek as we get into our passage this morning, you're going to see this stream of consciousness where Paul has these huge long, as he wraps up this whole argument of six chapters, it's all going to come home in a very practical, visceral kind of stream of consciousness where Paul's like, hey, here's how my life is. How about yours? How about yours? And we're all going to say, yes, I understand. So let's look here at Romans chapter 7, starting in verse 7. What should we say then? Is the law sin? Absolutely not. On the contrary, I would not have known sin if it were not for the law. For example, I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, do not covet. And sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me coveting of every kind. For apart from the law, sin is dead. Once I was alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin sprang to life again. And I died. The commandment that was meant for life resulted in death for me, for sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me, and through it killed me. So then the law is holy, and the commandment is holy and just and good. Therefore, did what is good become death to me? Absolutely not. On the contrary, sin, in order to be recognized as sin, was producing death in me through, that, through what is good. So that through the commandment, sin might become sinful beyond measure. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold as a slave to sin. For I do not understand what I am doing, because I do not practice what I want to do, but I do what I hate. Now if I do what I do not want to do, I agree with the law that it is good. So now I am no longer the one doing it, but it is the sin living in me. For I know that nothing good lives in me, that is, in my flesh. For the desire to do what is good is with me, but there is no ability to do it. For I do not do the good that I want to do, but I practice the evil that I do not want to do. Now if I do what I do not want, I am no longer the one that does it, but it is the sin that lives in me. So I discover this law. When I want to do what is good, evil is present with me. For in my inner self I delight in God's law. But I see a different law in the parts of my body, waging war against the law of my mind and taking me prisoner to the law of sin in the parts of my body. What a wretched man am I who will rescue me from this body of death. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then with my mind, I myself am serving the law of God, but with my flesh, the law of sin. This is a really personal passage that Paul writes. And it's something like we just talked about, we all understand. We've got two different natures fighting inside of us. Yes, sin is defeated. Yes, it's no more. But we are still sinners. We are. We are still sinners. And this deep dive lets us know, like we talked about last week, 
When we're under the law, when we're under that bad marriage of looking at just, yeah, the law's good, it shows us we're sinners, and if we get it right, that's that demanded duty. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get it right. The law will help you get something done, but it'll never change your heart. You'll never have any joy, any peace, any fulfillment. You don't want to live that way. It's a terrible way to live because you're constantly condemned, and it drives you to point the finger and do all those things we talked about. And yet, under grace... We have this idea of desire and delight. That God gets a hold of our hearts and we're like, hey God, here I am, warts and all. I'm a disaster, God. I'm a disaster. And I want to seek after you. And I want to tell you, if you read that passage this morning and you thought, that's how I feel. I always want to do this stuff and I never do it. Don't lose heart. That's a good thing. If you're like me and you're riding in the car and all of a sudden you think of something, oh, I shouldn't have done that. If you're like me, that's like a constant. Every stoplight, I'm like, dang it. If you're like me and you feel that way, that's a sign that God's spirit is alive in you. You're not trying to live into that self-righteousness, but in your brokenness, you're like Paul. You're looking at your sin and you're going, oh, that is so how I feel. You see, it's in our nature we want to know God's divinity. We want to know the wholeness, the fulfillment of God. That's, we were made to know God, to worship him, to glorify him. If you're going to worship and lift something up, you have to know it. We were made for that. So that desire we always have to understand what's beyond us, that's a God-given thing. There was a worship band in the 90s when all this worship stuff kind of changed for the church significantly in the late 80s, early 90s, called Sonic Flood. They were the first kind of Rock and roll kind of worship band. Everybody kind of freaked out. Grandparents hated them. It was, you know, one of those things. And, but they had this song they did called, I Want to Know You. He said, I want to know you more. I want to reach out. I want to touch your face. I remember Jeff Deo, the lead singer. I, I prayed with them and worked some places where they were, they were really good guys. And that was just really their desire, this band. And I remember they were saying, I want to know you, God. I want to understand you. But yet in my sinfulness, I don't really feel like I... I do that. I'm wired to worship you, to glorify you. The chief end of all humanity is to glorify God and to have this, enjoy this relationship with him. But it never feels like it happens because that sin that Paul's talking about, it, it separates us. That's how we feel. And so we end up with these two natures. The great preacher Charles Spurgeon put it like this. There was once a blacksmith. And so he went and he made his own chains day after day because the king, the tyrant that had enslaved him, would bring him in from the dungeon and make him forge chains day after day. And he would tell him, make the chain longer, make the chain longer, make it thicker, make it stronger. So he would do that. And finally, day after day, week after week, year after year, the chains were long and they were done. And then the tyrant took the blacksmith and shackled him up by the very chains that he had made. And Spurgeon's point and it's just as true for us in our world today. That's what the devil does to us with our sin. By what we do, we forge our own prisons. If you're a rock and roll fan, there was a band called Creed that did a song called My Own Prison. Based on this very concept from Charles Spurgeon. Shackled up by my own sin. I make my own chains. That's what I do. That's what we do. 
We create with our own actions. Oh, we may make our chains out of different substances. We're different people. We have different sins. But we make them all the same. We feel like two different people. Maybe you're not into that kind of thing. Maybe you're not a blacksmith. Maybe you like to read. Does anybody know the book Robinson Crusoe? Robert Louis Stevenson? First book I ever read when I was a little kid. Love that book. Do you guys know one of his other great books is what? Dr. Jekyll? Mr. Hyde. Now, maybe you didn't know this, but Robert Louis Stevenson was a good Scot. My people. And a good Presbyterian, of course, as well. And he wrote that story after studying Romans 7. If you know that story, if you remember it, you guys all remember the basics of it, right? There's a potion, there's something that flips a, a trigger, there's like sin, it flips a switch, and Dr. Jekyll, of course, the other side, he loses control and he becomes Mr. Hyde. After reading what Paul wrote in Romans 7, he said, yeah, I understand that. And as he wrestled with that, that's the story that came out of it. Sin leads us into rebellion against God and against his goodness, and that sin it just seems to have its way. It takes control with us and it destroys our lives. It destroys our relationships with other people. It brings us into this, this state of where we accuse others or where we're just terrible to others, not just what, 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 what we do or say, but how we think, even how we feel. Sometimes we could just swear there are two different people living inside of us by two different laws, two different sets of rules. And the law, as we learned last week, it defines sin for us. It shows us we miss the mark. And for the Pharisees, the reason Paul's talking here, he says, do not covet. He says, do not covet. Paul uses that as an example. Remember, Paul was a Pharisee, and he had even met Jesus face to face on the road to Damascus. And yet, he's saying, I'm still a sinner. Why do you choose coveting? All the things he could choose. You see, coveting is something you can do without anybody else knowing you're doing it. Right? Someone rolls up in a sweet new ride and you're driving your, I don't want to say an AMC Gremlin because I'm pretty sure Ralph Appleby has a special place in his heart for one of those, as I recall. But let's pick a terrible car. Say you're still driving a 1985 Yugo. <laughs> Stats would say that's very unlikely, but anyhow. So you have like a Yugo. And your neighbor pulls in in a brand new Yukon Denali, loaded up, just in time for the long winters, all 11 and a half months of winter in Ohio that we have, right? And so you're going to say to your neighbor, that's a beautiful truck. And maybe you mean it, but depending on who you are, you may be thinking, you suck and why don't I have one of those? Or your, your neighbor, she comes out and she says, I've been eating right and doing yoga and I lost 35 pounds. And you think you know where that 35 pounds went. You're pretty sure you saw it this morning. And you may think, well, wonderful, as they would say in the South, bless your heart. Right? We all get it. We get it. We get it. But see, the Pharisees, Paul's people, if they didn't do something physically, it didn't happen. So if I thought something about you, like I could just kill you, 
I don't do that often, just so you know. But if I did that, and I didn't kill you, as far as the Pharisees were concerned, no harm, no foul. But that's not what God's word teaches. What Jesus says, Matthew 5, he says, if you look at someone hatefully, it's like you killed them. If you have heard it said, don't commit adultery, but you look at someone lustfully, you've already committed adultery with that person in your heart. Matthew chapter 5 tells us that. But what's our world tell us? Maybe you're a fan of, a fan of Twilight, and I know we have people here that love Disney. That's great. I don't hate Disney. I'm excited for the new Lion King movie like I am. Better not ruin the original. TV shows, movies, this idea we're always taught. What do they always tell us? We have two natures in our heart, but our world always says, follow your hearts. And as my friend, friend Dwight Schrute would tell you, false. That's a terrible idea. Why is that a terrible idea? Because your heart is like Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. We always look at those external things like the Pharisees do. We do it in our world. It's how we judge people. If you go back to 1 Samuel 16, when David was chosen, all the other brothers had better resumes. And God says, no, 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 Samuel, get the one out there. The one in the field nobody wants. You look on the outside, but God looks at the heart. God knows what we don't. And we know our hearts. Jeremiah reminds us, Jeremiah 17, 9, our hearts, they're deceitful more than anything else. They're incurable. They're wicked in some translations. The human heart, who can understand it? You can't just follow your heart. You can't just say it's all going to be okay. The law shows us we're sinful. The law shows us God's word and God's spirit combined will lead us to know that, hey, this is not going to bring life. It's going to bring death. But what we, what we do is we rebel. We learned about that last week. R.C. Sproul says it's cosmic treason. We put ourselves on God's throne and we say, God, I know better. But we're deluding ourselves. It's deceitful. Our own hearts will trick ourselves. We'll justify to ourselves. They don't deserve that. You deserve it. They shouldn't have that. You should have it. You see why Paul chooses that? Sin is what we think, it's who we are, and it affects all of us. We used to do youth ministry at a church in Enon Valley, Pennsylvania, next to a place called Dawson's Orchard. The idea of sin is easily understood in this. There are beautiful round red trees, and once in a while my very young son at that point and my daughter would run around, and they'd be allowed to get an apple. And the orchard took really good care of some of the trees, but Every few years, they'd let a few of them kind of rest, and they would do their own thing. You guys, if you've ever been in an orchard, you know how this works. And so my son one time got an apple off one of these trees. And on the outside, the apple looked perfect, but when he bit into it, what did he find? A worm. My son, being a very smart young boy, checked and examined the apple closely, even the piece he had spit out of his mouth in surprise, and there were no holes on it. There were no spots where the worm had gotten into the apple. Right? What happened? Well, my friends, since they run an orchard, Dawson's Orchard, you'll see their trucks around here. They go Giant Eagles in other places and other stores, or in Pennsylvania, as we call them, Giant Eagle. So they would go and they would spray all the, the, the uh, apple blossoms and the things as they're growing. But the worms, the larva gets on the apple blossom, and as the apple grows, what happens is it 
swallows the larva. And so the larva grows into a worm inside the apple and then tries to get its way out. It's there when the apple's created. It's there from the very beginning. Just like our sin. That total depravity. That original sin. It's there before our hearts are even formed. Our hearts swallow it up, but it's still in there. There's those two natures going on. And when we understand that whatever looks perfectly on the outside isn't really perfect on the outside, it should change our lives. It should change us. Once you know what sin is, once you know that it's burrowed deep in your heart, once you know it's a part of who you are, like what we see in our passage today, it should change you. Once you know that not only the depth of your sin exists, but your want to sin, you like to sin, you like to sin a lot, it should change the way that you look at yourself, that you look at the world, and that you look at the God who saved you. It should humble us. Think about Paul, the great apostle. He's saying here, look, I don't want to do this stuff, but I keep doing it. I'm a terrible, what a wretched guy I am. If Paul can say that, what about us? What about us? When someone says something to you that's not even a big deal and you immediately look at them and think something terrible when they're right in your face. For example, say your minister, loving and kind, is before you. And you say something to him or he says something to you. I know this is impossible, this could not have happened, but maybe you've looked and said, what a jerk that guy is. You know what? Maybe I was. I don't know. I'm sorry if I was. Because we all know what Paul says is true for us. I don't understand what I'm doing. Verse 15, because I do not practice what I want to do, but I do what I hate. Is that not your story and mine? Now if I do what I do not want to do, I agree with the law that the law is good. You see, a lot of people in our world today, they look at God's word and God's spirit, and we say, no, no, that's not any good. There's a, you know, that's, that's kind of an old-fashioned way to look at it. God's word is true. It's the same yesterday, today, and forever, and we'll never not preach it for what it is. The problem isn't God's word. We don't have new understandings of things. We've just found a new way to say, you know what? I'm good. I don't need to do what God says. I've got a better idea. That's not new. That's the oldest idea of all. That's that treason. That's self-righteousness. But when Christ gets a hold of our hearts like Paul, we can choose to go the other way and say, no, I don't know. It's not that God's word is the problem. God's word is good. I'm the problem. I want to do this. In our world today, the justification for most sin is, as Cheryl Crow would say, if it makes you happy, it can't be that bad. I don't think that's a really good stream of logic. Driving my car fast makes me happy. If I go off a cliff, it's going to feel bad. That's what we do. Do we see that God's word is showing us that we have a real struggle with sin. I just need to quit telling stories about driving when I was a teenager. When I was 
19 on my birthday, I remember. So I was just not a teenager, right? Lucky me. So I'm racing home through the country. I, I worked on a racing team uh, for race cars. And so it's bad because I'm in a uniform that says racing all over it and everything. My truck has stickers on that says racing. Bad idea. I'm driving home and I was racing. I was. And this car pulls out and starts chasing me and revving its engine. It has no headlights and it's revving and trying to pull up alongside of me. Assuming it's a drunk driver, what did I do? I did what Bo and Luke Duke taught me to do. I dropped the hammer to the floor. I'd seen Smokey and the Bandit. I knew what I needed to do. I hit the gas and I took off. And I had a fast truck. A little too fast. Moms and dads, don't give your teenagers fast cars. And as I got near my hometown out of the countryside, I slowed down to reasonable speeds and was shocked when four police cars surrounded me. Three alarm fire, I was proud. I said, well, I must have done something that I'm not aware of at this moment. So as the cop came out and said, why did you run from the police? I said, I didn't run from the police. There was a drunk driver chasing me. And as the police car from the little rural town where my high school was came rattling in about seven or eight minutes later because I had really left him behind. <laughs> he had no lights. He had no sirens. No spinning lights, no headlights. As he got out yelling, the police officer from my town who knew me tapped, me on the tapped him on the shoulder and pointed at his car. The police gave me a not coming to a complete stop at a stop sign ticket, I think, or something like that, and sent me on my way. They were right about that, maybe four or five of them, actually. So. And I left. And as I thought about that, as I hurried to my friend's house who was waiting for me to give me a birthday card, I think, or something silly, I recognized something, something that we all need to recognize. If God's word is convicting you, if God's spirit is leading you, if you're struggling and God says, like Paul says, hey, I understand you're struggling with this and the sin that's inside of you, these two natures, if you're fighting with that, that should change not only how you look at your own life, but how you look at the life of the world around you. If the sirens are flashing and the lights are going off in your head, that's a good sign. If you're racing towards destruction and you don't see any lights or sirens, if you don't understand that you're doing anything wrong, you've got a different problem. And maybe you have to ask, you have to ask God to renew your heart and renew your life. Because if we're all struggling with sin, it should change how we love and care for other people. We should have mercy and grace on other people because if they're not Christians, they don't see the lights. They don't see the siren. They don't see the destruction. They are spiritually blinded to it. If we're of two natures and we know better and we still struggle, how about those who don't? It should change us. That humility should change us. If it doesn't frustrate you, if it doesn't upset you, if you find yourself wanting to be self-righteous and yell at others instead of loving, it doesn't mean that sin isn't sin. It doesn't mean it's not wrong. The law is good. But if you don't start from a place of saying, this struggle changes me. I see the lights. I see the sirens. I see the signs. I'm going to make it a priority to love on this person who does not see it. They don't know they're going 100 miles an hour towards the guardrail. They don't understand. And we have been put here by Christ to, in love, 
and in grace and in understanding to say, yeah, I'm a wretched person. I'm a mess too. If we could be real with each other instead of being like the Pharisees and putting up our force shields and pretending we got it all together. Because friends, I can tell you this about the church today. Nobody's buying it. There's an estimate came out this week. A new poll shows that by the, I don't know, about 18 years from now, they figure, 11% of the American population will attend church. 11.4, I think. Maybe if we change how we do this, because this is what everybody knows, it's what everybody's struggling with. It's what everybody is struggling with. The struggle is real, sin is real, God's grace is real. In my own life, I'm going to give you an example of how this works, if we're real with each other. I tend to try to do everything for everybody. And everybody says, you are so kind. You are such a kind person, and I really do love you guys. But part of why I do that is I have a fear of everybody being upset with me. I was raised in a world where I had to be perfect. And so part of my doing that is the sin of pride where I'm trying to pridefully get it all right. Why am I telling you that? Because maybe in the church, if we were a little more real about that, we don't have it all together, that we are kind of messed up people, but God's grace is big enough, if we could learn to be those people that didn't have the facade up, the people that are like, yeah, here's who I am, here's what I'm about, and God is real, and I'm a sinner too, and that doesn't mean that sin's okay, it just means that I got some work to do. Because when we get real like that, the self-righteousness and the, the judgment goes down. Doesn't make sin any less real, but God's grace, God's mercy, God's compassion overflows in us onto other people. And they say, you know what? If that Jesus has done that for you, I want, I want him to do it for me too. That's what Paul's getting at. And that's what we're going to see as we go into Romans chapter 8 next week. That the cross has covered it all. And if we can live that, if we can show that, if we can amplify that, that Jesus has done it all. If we can say, you know, I'm not a together person. I'm not the worst I could be, but I got these two natures in me. These two laws that are trying to guide me and only one of them is true. But thanks be to God through Jesus Christ that I'm not what I could be. This week, think about your own life. Think about the places where you can be real, where you can be vulnerable, where you can be honest about who you are. And think about our church and how in some of those situations, if we had vehicles where we shared, where we cared, and where we trusted each other, how that can transform a faith community. If you have some of those, if you've already done some of that, you know what I'm talking about. Let's get real with each other and with the world around us, that we don't have it all together, but thanks be to God that in Jesus Christ, he does. Let's pray. Father, that we would know what it means to belong to you, that we would understand, God, whether it's us in our lives, whether it's not just our sin, but the, the sins that we do that we see even in our kids or our grandkids. We recognize that how we live, it affects us, it affects others. It touches our lives, it touches others. God, in a world where people 
are blinded and don't see where things are headed in their lives, if by your Spirit we see that we have a responsibility to be real, to be merciful, yes, your law is good, yes, it's true, and there is a right from wrong, but that if we could love and serve and care for each other, that we could have mercy on each other, it's not that we won't struggle with sin, but we can have an honest, open struggle with that. God, make that the cry of our church, that we would love and care for each other, and that we would care for others that think that Christians are just out to hate them. God, it doesn't change the reality of your word, but if your grace was at the forefront of who we are, God, if we would make that the cry of our hearts, how you would use us, how you would use us to be ambassadors of redemption in a world that desperately needs to know they are loved and in their brokenness they are understood and that your grace is big enough to change their lives and to change ours too. God, make that come alive in us this week that we consider ways where we can share how your grace has changed us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.